So now I'm going to preach on the end of the world from the book of Revelation. I'm going to ask you to sit because it is a, it is a rather uh, long passage. But we've been doing this series called Great Prayers of the Bible, and this is one of the great prayers. John enters the throne room of God. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was a, what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they take off their crowns and lay them before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. The word of God for the people of God. Amen? I told Dave, I said, on your last Sunday I'm preaching from the book of Revelation. He said, I'm just retiring. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, for a lot of us, it feels like the end of the world. But, but I, chose, I, I chose this passage today because you can say a lot of things about Dave Seeley's ministry, many things we could talk about, but there's one thing that I think we all will agree on. That Dave's deepest passion in whatever he does is worship. Whether he's leading music with youth, or leading worship with us, or leading worship at camp. He's all been about worship. In fact, if you were up to Dave alone, um, we would have no small talk in worship. We would have no announcements, no commercials for events. Maybe a sermon, maybe not. But it would be one hour of worship and music and praise, because for Dave... When things are going badly, we worship. When things are going great, we worship. All of life is meant to be a response of gratitude to God, giving thanks to God for all the things that He's given us, everything around us, the world and people and friendships. 
and that our whole life is meant to be lived in thanks to God, which offering our God our worship. So worship for Dave is not just what happens here. It's our whole life response to God. And when we live with gratitude, when we live with humility, when we serve, we give, it's an act of worship. Well, that's why I chose this, this final prayer, because this final prayer from the book of Revelation is a prayer that calls us to worship God in difficult times and all times. It is this prayer where John, who is exiled onto an island, is expressing extreme confidence in the faithfulness of God who was, is, and forever shall be. And whenever we pray this prayer, whether our life is together, our life is coming apart, no matter what is happening in the world, we are expressing our extreme confidence in God who has his hands on this world. When we pray, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and shall be, we are proclaiming an eternal kingdom that has withstood this test of time and will be here at the end of time, a kingdom of mercy, grace, and truth, a kingdom won by peace through mercy and not through sword. That's what that prayer means. Now, I, I can't think really of a time when I've ever preached a sermon on the book of Revelation, and that's pretty understandable if you've ever read the book. It's strange, difficult to understand. We're not familiar with the literature. And in fact, did you know this? Did you know that the book of Revelation was not uh, made officially to be a part of our Bible until the 4th century? It was rejected by the, many people in the early church. Eusebius, who was an early church historian and a bishop, basically said half the churches accept it, half the churches dispute it. And in the Syrian church, it was not welcomed into the canon of, the, of Scripture until the 6th century. And for a lot of reasons. One reason is that it's the way that Christ is betrayed. People are troubled because it seems to contradict who we see Jesus to be in the Gospels, one of mercy and kindness to his enemies. But in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, with a robe dipped in blood, leading an army to dispatch his enemies and to cast the evil one into the lake of fire. But I do think, I do think if you understand what kind of literature it is and why it was written and who it was written to, it will make sense to you. And this prayer, rather than being uh, difficult for us to understand, it will come alive and it will become a resource for you at any moment in time in your life, if you will take it into your heart. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here's what was going on. You understand that when John wrote this letter, when he had this vision, the whole world was coming apart. It was like the whole world was, in some sense, on fire. Previously, before this letter was written around 95 AD, the world had seen something happen that was very terrible and awful. Uh, there was a revolt in Jerusalem. And the Roman army came into Jerusalem and destroyed everything. Pulled down every stone on the temple. The only wall remaining is the western wall, which now is an object of veneration in Jerusalem. Everything else was destroyed. And thousands, I mean 
thousands of people were crucified for miles and miles and miles along the road into Jerusalem. Christians and Jews were forced to scatter to go to all ends of the earth. Meanwhile, in 64 AD, another terrible event took place. Rome, which was the center of the world, caught fire, started in Circus Maximus, and among some of the poor dwellings there in Rome, began this huge fire that engulfed the whole city and destroyed almost all the beautiful buildings there in Rome. Now, tradition says that Nero, who was the emperor, chose to burn the city down because he was a maniacal man who wanted to re-stamp Rome in his own image because he believed himself to be the divine son of God, Nero Caesar Augustus, the supreme ruler of the world. Now, it may or may not be true that he burned it to the ground, but whatever happened, he used it for his own political advantage to try to recreate the world in his own image. And then he used it to scapegoat Christians, crucified many of them, threw some of them to wild animals. It was during this time that Peter and Paul were executed. And they took many of these Christians, attached them to poles, covered them in tar pitch, hung them up in the night sky, and lit them on fire to light the streets. Imagine a world on fire. Now, meanwhile, where John lived, he lived in this area of Asia Minor, and there were seven churches in Asia Minor. And he established a bishop in Pergamum by the name of Antipas. Antipas was a bishop who was a follower of John. And Antipas became so successful in his preaching that the Roman temple and the Roman gods began to lose money from their temples for offerings and sacrifices were no longer being made because they were all becoming Christians. He was ordered to stop. He was ordered to worship the Roman gods. And he was ordered to bow down to Caesar as God. When he refused, they executed him in the temple of Artemis. Meanwhile, John is going all over Asia Minor. He's preaching the gospel too and having great success. And when he refused to stop, they took John and put him, according to tradition, put him in a boiling cauldron pot, lit it on fire, but he was not consumed. When they realized that they couldn't kill him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos off the coast of what is today Turkey, where he would have no one to preach to. But John had a pen. You see, much of early Christian writing was written in a time when people believed the world was on fire and everything was coming in glue. John believed when he wrote the book of Revelation, he believed that there was a widespread persecution about to be launched on the Christian church around the world. And at that time, it was true, Christians were being forced to bow down to Caesar and to worship Caesar as son of God and also to abandon Christ. Romans at that time believed that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship all the gods, but only one God. And so this group of literature that we've just read, the reason it's strange to us, but not strange to them, it's called apocalyptic literature. In times of suffering around the first century, before Jesus' birth and afterwards, apocalyptic literature was written. The word revelation is a Latin rendering of the word apocalypse. 
In this apocalyptic literature, there would be shocking visions, startling revelations, where a word would be given from on high to a man or a woman on the earth who would then reveal the truth of who was in control of the world. It was also very, very pessimistic language because it believed that this world was controlled by dark forces and the only way to overcome the dark forces in the world was for a divine overthrow and establishment of a new kingdom. Now, this language in Revelation and apocalyptic, this is important, is called resistance literature. When the forces in the world are oppressing and crushing people, bringing destruction on God's people, it's resistance literature saying, stand up to the man. Resist. Don't bow down to anyone, to any other God. Keep Jesus Christ at the center of your heart. And it was meant to be a word of encouragement. And so when you read here in this fourth chapter, then, can you see how this all makes sense? Here is John, and he is exiled on this island of Patmos, and he wonders what's happening to the world. And he has this vision, and in this vision he is challenged to write seven letters to seven churches, challenging them and admonishing them to stay faithful to Christ and not give up to Christ, not to bow down to the Caesar, not to bow down to the Roman emperor, not to bow down to Rome, but instead to stand firm and to live for Christ, to continue to serve the poor, to continue to be people of mercy, to continue to live by the kingdom of God described in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Continue to be that people. So he wrote it for this reason. And so then you see... You see him carried up, and I want you to see this imagery. He's carried up above the earth where he can see down and see up, and suddenly he sees this image. Who is on the throne? A door is open for him to see that on the throne that God still is that control center of the universe. That though the world is coming apart, God is still connected. God is still involved. God still cares. God is still directing events in this world. And it is this powerful scene where he says, the sea was clear as glass. Meaning, the sea generally represented turmoil and chaos and conflict and death and destruction. But before God, it, it was calm, just as Jesus had said, Peace, be still. And there in that room, all creation, everything in heaven on the earth, begins to sing this powerful affirmation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the presence of the songs of praise, the elders who represented the apostles and those who had fallen in the name of Jesus faithfully removed their crowns and laid them at the feet of Jesus and said, you alone, O God, are worthy. You are the architect of all things. And then this great cry in heaven breaks out. Who then has the power to open the scroll that will show us what God is going to do? And they cry out, worthy alone is the Lamb. And then Jesus begins to take off the seven seals from the scroll. And then it gets really weird. Lots of destruction, more destruction, more destruction. And after God has brought all this destruction upon the earth, then comes out of the abyss a satanic-influenced antichrist with 
who numbered 666. Jesus goes to war with him, defeats him. He's cast in a lake of fire. And then what comforting image it is, comforting image it is, that a new heaven and earth comes where there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, and no more pain. Now, how would it sound to you in the first century? Resistance literature, encouragement, and so on. Well, what's happened then is we take this literature and we sometimes misunderstand it and we think it's about every age. And doomsday prophets will use it as grist for their preaching to incite fear. And they preach and use this book as if Jesus is this sword-bearing person coming to slay all the world's enemies, sway the world's enemies. And forget about Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, you know, for instance, Miller, w w William Miller preached in the 1840s, and in the 1840s, William Miller said the world was going to end on October 22nd. And there were 100,000 Millerites, not Millerites, Millerites, <laughs> who... I said that in the first service, and people got up and walked out. Uh, they went to get a Miller Lite, uh, who believed the world was going to come. But on October 22nd, the world, it, it all came and went, and it was called the Great Disappointment. In our, in our age, there have been the Branch Davidians and David Koresh and, and Marshall Applewhite, Heaven's Gate. You know, there was a whole series of books called the Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye and Jim Jenkins, which sold lots and lots of books. You know, I was in Israel standing on top of a mound called Tel Megiddo overlooking Armageddon, and I heard someone say, it's all going to happen right here. The end of the world. As if every age is when it, this is its prediction. So we lose ourselves in speculation. I think there's an alternative to looking at it that may be more helpful to us. And the alternative is to understand the context it was written and understand its history. And to those who read Revelation, it would have been no mistake. They would understand completely what this book was about. The great whore of Babylon that was at war with God's people, uh, that was on seven hills, which is a reference to Rome, was the Roman Empire. And a lot of, believe, a lot of people believe that the number 666 was a reference to Nero. A lot of reasons for that. You can look in the resources I provided to, to understand a little bit more how I came up with what I'm sharing with you today. But this is interesting. It says that the beast, the Antichrist, will come up out of the abyss and will have a mortal wound on his head and will come and wreak havoc against God's people. Well, Nero died from suicide. And there was a myth at that time that Nero would come from the dead and that Nero would come and wreak havoc on God's people in the world and bring damage and destruction. And three people over a hundred-year period came up, rose up, and said they claimed they were Nero and tried to bring together an army. See, they understood this because it was about their world. My point is it was about their world and not our world. And I think we misunderstand it and misuse it. The Bible is a very complex book in the sense that there are times in the Bible when it says obey the authorities and bow down before the authorities, and there are other times when it says resist the authorities and resist what's happening. There's no blanket approval for any government other than the kingdom of God. And that what this book is basically saying, only have space in your heart for God. Worship no other gods. Bow down to no other leaders. 
Place your faith in the kingdom of God. And this is, this is how I interpret this. Worlds end every day for someone, somewhere. People lose family members. People suffer and experience trauma. People lose their jobs. And worlds come, come apart every day. Nations have been rising and falling for generations and generations. But there is one king who still stands and reigns, and it is Christ, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to direct the events of the future. That he has a kingdom that still stands, that's unshakable. And every generation, there's not just one antichrist, there are many antichrists. There are people who rise up and use their power to inflict harm and to malign others and to abuse God's creation and the vulnerable people in the world. And some of the worst antichrists are those who claim to be in Christ, but then turn and use God's word in order to afflict harm and suffering upon others and to use their power for their own personal gain. So in a world where worlds end, where we're called to give no authority to anyone but to Christ, in a time when there are antichrists that come and go and nations rise and fall, what this prayer is, it is a prayer of hope that says, when we are tempted to give up on God's kingdom, to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was, who is, and who will be. It's encouragement and it's resistance. And the reason, again, I chose it, because this is Dave Seeley, I believe his message for me, is this. That when we look at the world and we see what's going on, our response should be worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, was, and shall be.